Good afternoon and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Atlas Live. We uh, want to right off the bat um, say it's unfortunate that we had to cancel last week's uh, live stream, but that was for Father's Day. And as it turns out, we're going to be canceling next week's live stream, which is going to be for the celebration of our father's 83rd birthday. It's summertime, and uh, at, at this period of time, uh, these events tend to congregate. And so uh, <clears throat> we do have these responsibilities that we have to... Uh, we have to take care of. And so just a heads up that there will be no live stream next week. We'll make an announcement on the page as well, just to remind you. Today's topic was inspired in part by the documentary film about the lost Leonardo, the alleged Salvador Munde, <clears throat> which, if you aren't aware, um, is a painting which was already infamous around the world because of the many copies that exist of it. And the painting itself was lost completely. No one knew what happened to it or when. And as you are probably aware, it was just a few years ago that it resurfaced in the United States of all places. <clears throat> and it was in terrible condition. It was in terrible shape. It was restored, and after a series of events, which we won't bother getting into, <clears throat> not at this time anyway, it ended up being sold at auction for 400,000, no, sorry, $400 million, 400 million US dollars. <clears throat> making it the most expensive, most valuable painting um, in, in history. And we're just pulling it up here uh, just so you can see it. There it is. <clears throat> now, it would be nice if we could make it bigger. There it is. All right, so perhaps if we go like, no, that doesn't work. What if we go like, no, that doesn't work either. Okay, well, <clears throat> so this is the Salvador Mundi, the alleged Salvador Mundi, and the documentary about the lost Leonardo is quite interesting, uh, and it's quite entertaining. 
it's also quite sad in in some ways there's information in there which may you may find uh irritating or frustrating or angering or downright disturbing whatever but the point of today's live stream is not to talk about this painting or the circumstances around it per se but Leonardo's dedication to his craft, Leonardo da Vinci's dedication to his art was in many ways unprecedented. If you know anything about the life of Leonardo, you will know that he studied examined, explored relentlessly. He has literally thousands of pages, sketches and notes in notebooks, particularly on human anatomy, but on all manner of subjects. And his perfectionism can be seen in his works, which is one of the reasons why the Salvatore Mundi pictured here is, although considered by many to be authentic, it really is an alleged Leonardo because in some ways it lacks some of the perfection of Leonardo's other works. Um, it really requires a keen eye and really uh, an expert eye to be able to pick up on some of these discrepancies, some of these uh, alleged problems. But Leonardo's perfection can be seen in the paintings that we know he painted. And these include the Mona Lisa. They include uh, the Last Supper. And it begged the question, or rather it inspired the question When is it appropriate for us to pursue that level of perfectionism in what we do? Nowadays, it seems that we very much live in a society where doing just enough or doing as much as we want or doing what we need to to get by seems to be the order of the day. Perfectionism is often associated with obsessive compulsiveness. Or we have the A-type personality, the perfectionist personality. 
and that individuals who seek perfection are in some way flawed. And indeed, there are examples of individuals who have become completely obsessed. with achieving some level of accomplishment, some level of achievement, some level of what in their mind is perfection. And as a result, their relationships, their families, friendships, other responsibilities, or, uh, you know, suffer. <clears throat> is it worth it? Is it appropriate? And how do we know? What is, the, what is the methodology that we use to arrive at the decisive truth, the objective truth about our particular pursuit, whatever it may be? And <clears throat> whether our deciding it's it's not ready yet it's not enough it's not good enough is the appropriate response versus no you know it's good enough how, how do we make that decision and make it reliably and know that we are pursuing perfection at, at an appropriate time in an appropriate way for an appropriate pursuit. And when is it just an obsession? And otherwise a waste of our time and energy. It's not an easy question. And is why we were inspired to, to raise it in today's live stream. Because in many ways, we are told that on the path, we are pursuing perfection the perfection of the self. And you will find endless, endless critiques of esotericism, of occultism, of gnosis in particular. Endless critiques of Buddhism as well. Saying that, no, 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 that's wrong. We can never achieve perfection. We can never achieve God's perfection. To do so is the, is the pinnacle of pride, of mystic pride. That's, after all, is that not the myth of Prometheus? Prometheus who tried to fly to heaven with wax uh, wings, wings made of feathers and wax. And then, of course, Prometheus flow, flew too close to the sun. And his wings melted and he came 
falling down back to earth, <clears throat> crashing back to earth. Is that not a cautionary tale for us in the pursuit of perfection? Is that not what the Promethean myth is all about? That man should not strive to be godlike. We should not reach for the heavens. As Azil says, perfection has been seen as witchcraft, and the hunt can be seen today as well, meaning the hunt the for witches. <laughs> so the, the hunt for those seeking perfection. Um, and uh, he also says, hello, and hello, Azazel. By the way, Azazel, there's the link if you feel like jumping on and uh, uh, save, save your uh, some time and your fingers uh, typing. It's been a while since you've been on. So, <clears throat> there is much that we wanted to share with you, but because of YouTube's, um, you know, we've, we've fallen into these traps in the past and our live stream was even banned midstream live that we were hit with a copyright strike, et cetera, et cetera. So we are going to ask you to invoke your creative imagination and your memories and your retrospection and recollection as we share some of these things with you just verbally because we could spend all this time finding the links and trying to play videos and so on and so forth. But in the end, it, it's a bit of a distraction for us technologically. We don't have any helpers. We don't have any so-called wrenches in the background or producers helping us do the show. It's all us, just us. So if we're trying to look up things on the internet and play things and do videos, that distracts us from the primary goal here, which is to share with you that which is flowing through us that's more important and if what comes to mind for example in this moment is that scene from the last samurai that tom cruise movie where he travels to japan and he befriends the samurais and he learns the code of bushido the way of the warrior and the uh, samurai lord whose name ex escapes me it's on the tip of my tongue it might come to me any moment um is going through the garden he's looking at the cherry blossoms and he said you can search your entire life for the perfect cherry blossom and never find it you can search your entire life for the perfect cherry blossom and never find it and then there's a moment in the movie which if you haven't seen it, we won't give it away. But there's a moment in the movie uh, where he makes this profound discovery about the perfection of cherry blossoms. The reality is that perfection is everywhere. It's all around us. And we can turn to, of all places, 
a slogan from a car company of all places. Lexus. Their slogan, I, we don't know if they still use this. They certainly used it for many years, beginning sometime in the 90s, I believe, maybe perhaps even the 80s. In the 80s, they it's a Toyota created that luxury car brand and they said, uh, they called it Lexus and they, their slogan was the relentless pursuit of perfection. The relentless pursuit of perfection. And the whole brand was about perfection and these luxury automobiles, which were not only beautiful to look at and on the interior and luxurious, et cetera, et cetera, and good to drive and all of these things, but also had the reliability that was even higher or greater than your typical Toyota, which Toyota is known for its reliability. And so that car company felt that they could create this brand that represented, at least in autom automotive terms, in the automotive world, the relentless pursuit of perfection. And we see that all around us. We see that in nature, especially. Nature relentlessly pursues perfection. So much so that if you spend any time in nature, you will come across expressions of beauty, of wonder, of, of perfection. Beauty and power and energy that no photograph, no video, no poem, and no painting can capture or relay. What are we experiencing if not the perfection of creation, the perfection of God, the perfection of the Logos, the Christ, expressing itself? in all of these myriad ways. Perfection is our birthright. Perfection is, a, is in our nature. So why would we ever be encouraged not to pursue perfection? What is the determining factor? Who pursue, Who suggests that we should not pursue perfection and not relentlessly pursue it? Usually, usually they are individuals who have no interest in pursuing perfection. They are not motivated by excellence in any way, shape, or form. And they are not motivated by self-realization, self-actualization, or awakening. They are not, they do not feel the fire, the Christic fire of their innermost intimate Christ, longing to express itself through them, 
They have no concept of this. They have no experience of this. They have no experience or, or concept that can even remotely approach what we refer to as the passion of the Christ. And we've described many times what that means and why it is that Christ's crucifixion is referred to as a passion play and that the passion of the Christ specifically refers to his crucifixion. How does that make any sense? Well, it makes perfect sense when you comprehend what genuine, real passion is. Passion is that which you are willing to suffer for. Passion is that which you are willing to die for. That is what you are willing to give your life to, to dedicate your life to, to sacrifice your life, your energy, your time, your resources, your skills, your abilities, everything that you have, everything that defines who and what you are on every level of your being. You are willing to offer up and devote and dedicate to some purpose, some enterprise, some mission, or some vocation, a life's work. This is passion, true passion, genuine passion. Because what is driving and pushing us in that direction, it burns deep inside of us. The fire of fires and the light of lights of the, of the Christ, our innermost intimate Christ. And in truth, when you speak to those who are living their passion and you ask them, why are you enduring all this suffering? Why, why aren't you taking it easy? Or, you know, you could get this, you could go get a job or you could go get these clients or you could go get this money and you could go have a nice, comfortable life. Why are you putting yourself through all this suffering? Anyone who's following their true passion will tell you because I wouldn't have it any other way. Because passion, what we're willing to suffer and die for, also happens to be synonymous with what Joseph Campbell called following your bliss. Bliss. Take a moment to meditate on the word bliss. Joseph Campbell chose his words carefully. And that word in particular, he chose carefully. Because bliss seems to be even above joy, above happiness above peace, and yet encapsulating all three of those terms. 
That's bliss. Bliss is not fleeting. Bliss endures. Bliss is the promised land. The land of milk and honey. It is nirvana. It is heaven. It is the Garden of Eden. Where peace, joy, and happiness reign. It is the domain of the gods. It is the nature of the Christ. It is the nature of the Logos. That fire that burns inside. That fills us with the passion that we are willing to suffer and die for. Also fills us with the bliss to do so. And the pursuit of perfection that energy, that life force, that life-giving, life-affirming, life-defining and path-directing force can take many, 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 many forms. And sometimes reveal itself in the most unexpected of ways, and even whimsical ways. We often have, in our experience, had the pleasure of preparing meals for, obviously, family and friends and others. And For whatever reason, for whatever reason, we, even if we're preparing a salad, we will take an extra few moments. It just, or just how it unfolds, how it just naturally unfurls at our hands that we end up making a beautiful presentation of that salad or that dessert, or that meal. And it could be something very simple, like how we arrange the berries on the plate, or the fruit, or the toppings, or whatever the case may be. It's just, it could be very simple. It could literally mean a matter of seconds of difference in time, and veritably no discernible difference in energy or effort, certainly from our perspective. Just that, you know, there's that cliche about the little things. It's the little things that count. What are these little things? Have you ever paid attention to yourself? going through your day or preparing a meal or doing something for somebody and you you just do a little thing you add a little thing it's just just 
trivial, trite, insignificant little thing. And yet, that little thing gives you so much joy to do, to add. It took practically no time, practically no effort, like maybe an extra minute or two max, maybe a little bit of extra energy. Just, But there's another saying, like the, it's the thought that counts. And it's just, you have this little bit of joy come to you as you're doing this little thing for somebody. For us, it's like when we prepare a salad. Yeah, sure, we could throw everything in a bowl. We could toss it all up and we could put it on the plate. It's a salad. Everything, it's, everything's in there. Or we plate the salad individually, plate by plate, and we meter out all the toppings so that we present an edible mandala to the person and we then and they'll comment oh my god that looks so beautiful oh what a presentation or oh what how special is that or oh you shouldn't have gone to all this trouble or whatever the case may be how are they respond how are they react to it and it's just this insignificant little thing. But it gives us joy to do, and it gives somebody joy to receive. A little moment, a little taste, a little drop of bliss. Just that little moment where they know that somebody put a little bit more time and a little bit more care and a little bit more effort into some into something for their sake for their sake that dear friends believe it or not those little things those little moments those are an expression of god's perfection Those are an expression of God's perfection. So we start with this grandiose talk of life's work and vocations of the things we're willing to suffer and die for. Yes, certainly. That's one extreme and that's the big picture. But the journey of a thousand miles not only begins with a single step, it's made up of hundreds of thousands of little steps, little things, little moments. And the Caesar Hadrian said, brick by brick, how is Rome built? Brick by brick, citizens, brick by brick. The great pyramid of Giza, that we are building of our life, that we are making of our path, is laid down brick by brick by brick, moment by moment by moment, with one little gesture after another, after another, after another. And when we observe ourselves, we recognize that. 
We see that. And we say, there is a spark, a seed, a tiny little taste, a drop in the bucket or a drop in the ocean. And we're trying to fill Lake Mead with an eyedropper. But it doesn't matter. Because each eyedropper gives us that tremendous feeling that only the relentless pursuit of perfection can provide us. Those who are on the path, those who are here to perfect themselves or to perf perfect their craft, perfect their skill, perfect their vocation, perfect their whatever, as Da Vinci did. Perfect his painting technique. Or as Michelangelo did, perfect his sculpting technique. And there are other sculptors who, because we're so terrible with names, will never remember their names. But there are other sculptors. For example, there's that sculptor that paints painted that I guess Madonna and child and 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 sh she's covered in a in in lace in a, in a shroud in a in a veil she's veiled and the veil is carved from stone but it is so delicate it is so absolutely delicate you would swear that it's that it's silk you cannot, you cannot tell that it's not silk. You cannot tell that it's not the finest, most delicate veil, and yet it is carved in stone, and you can see her skin beneath it, and it's an absolute revelation to behold. And it is so remarkable that we, yes, here it is. Yeah, okay, so it's the, the Veiled Virgin, the Veiled Virgin by Giovanni Straza. And um, here we can, we can share this with you here, there. That's carved out of stone. And it's perfect. It is, it's, it's perfect. And it's, it's remarkable. And of course, it's easy to recognize the skill and dedication and the years of practice and the years of trial and error and the years of failure after failure after failure after failure after failure that leads someone to something like this. Or we can think of Beethoven, who came and saddled himself with the additional burden of losing his hearing, of going deaf, And then having what is 
objectively the greatest piece of music ever written, his Ninth Symphony, played for the first time such that he himself could not hear it being played. He was completely stone deaf by then. And the incredible suffering and sacrifice that he must have gone through to be able to bring that perfection, that expression of perfection into the world through such an imperfect vessel as himself. As Azil has a comment here, he says, uh, some people have forgotten their life's work from when they are children. It is quite common to see the tendencies at younger ages. Certainly children have propensities and, and talents or they, they show a propensity for this or that skill. And, and um, unfortunately, sometimes those are lost or other things take priority. But other times, it's good that those children grow up and grow out of those propensities. In our case, that was very much the case. Had we, had we pursued what we were good at as as a child, uh, we might have been pushed or encouraged into uh, academics or materialist science or possibly law and possibly politics after that, or who knows. So while children can, can have skills and talents, it's not, that doesn't mean that they were born to do this or that or be this or that. It's possible, but there's no guarantee. And there's no one who ultimately should make that decision, but the individual themselves. Because in our case, we have taken a road to where we are today, which has uh, like a ball in a pinball machine, zigzagging all over and going from this industry to that activity to another uh, career path to another and just back and forth and back and forth there was a through line there was a thread which connected all of these things of course but that thread was a secret thread that thread was very much known only to us we shared with a very 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 few people and that was 
that we're here to make a difference. And that difference was that work, that life's work. We were open to many, many different potential expressions of it. And we were open to many, many different paths leading down towards it. And at every moment, at every time, we were suffering and sacrificing a great deal in the pursuit of what many people around us couldn't make any heads or tails of and couldn't make any sense out of. But we were following our bliss. As Joseph Campbell would say, we were following our bliss. We were following the guidance of our innermost. And our innermost is Alux, is the Christ. And to bring it back to Azazel's comment about children, yes, we were also very good at that, very good at serving others, very good at taking care of others and helping others at a very young age. But you see, that's not a career, right? That's not a vocation. That's not a skill. That's not a, right? Helping others, giving to others, taking care of others, worrying about others, doing for others' sake. There's no, there's no university for that. There's no degree for that. There's no career for that. You don't get paid for that. <laughs> you don't. We know that all too well is that the world doesn't reward bodhisattva, doesn't reward people on the bodhisattva path. There is no worldly... Uh, uh, there is no worldly reward system or incentive, worldly incentives to pursue your passion, which is why we have the starving artist archetype. And so many individuals, people like Nikolai Tesla, who, who died a, a poor man. Um, and we have individuals like Mozart, who likewise uh, died very young and uh, destitute, for the most part, with great debts. Now, he had debts for various different reasons, but one of the reasons was the fact that his music was simply not fully understood or appreciated in his time, in his day. And that's the case of many artists and many musicians throughout history, and many masters throughout history are just ahead of their time. And their perfection that is expressing in their work is a threat to the establishment. And that truly, before we, can, before we uh, take this off the screen, Azazel says, yes, he did many of those, uh, referring to the sculpture and uh, Giovanni Strazzi here, so Strazza, sorry. We're going to see if we can uh, possibly. All right. Let's see if we can fix this up. Is that? Oh, that's no good. Okay, that's a bit better. All right. So coming back to this 
perfection as a threat. We'll get to that. Benjamin brings up something interesting that we want to address here. We want to. We don't want to uh, let this one go too long. Okay. Benjamin says there is a parable in the Bible about uh, about the uh, the parable of the talents. The one given with the least talent buried it, and those with more increased it. In the end, the one who buried his talent was punished. How can we avoid that predicament? Develop your talents. But remember, again, see, we also had, we were also talented, right? We, we were a chess prodigy. We were a child chess prodigy. We went to tournaments. We had a chess coach and we were going to tournaments and we were beating adults in those tournaments. We weren't in the children's division, we were in the adult division, but but as a child, we were talented at chess. But just because you're talented at something, doesn't mean that that's what you're here to do. We didn't have the passion for chess. We had a passion for chess, for playing chess with our friends, and it was it was it was fun. It was a it was a game. We we enjoyed many many different types of games actually. But for us, it was just another game. It was just but chess is the king of games. Chess is the most perfect game. Chess is the perfect reflection of life. It is the perfect allegor, allegorized game of the game of life as a game on a game board. There is no other game that comes close. There might be other games that rival chess in terms of complexity, in terms of all sorts of other factors, but no, no game rivals chess in its allegorical truths and the way it represents reality and the path, the path of awakening and self-realization. Chess is perfect in that sense. It is perfection. And we enjoyed playing chess for a number of different reasons. But what we did not have is, despite having a talent, an innate talent for chess, we did not have the drive, the passion, the fire was not there to develop that talent any further. So we, we hit a level and we said our competitive chess days are over from this point forward if we ever play chess it's going to be for fun it's just going to be just or for social or whatever reasons we're never playing chess competitively again we and we've never we haven't picked up a chess book or studied any openings or endings or anything else well we're interested in chess we we, we watch movies about chess where and we we try to keep up to date on things that are happening in the chess world, for example, Deep Blue beating Gary Kasparov and all of these sorts of things. But we did not pursue that talent. We buried that talent. Now, are we wrong to do so? Of course not. 
because we had many talents. We had many talents. And the thing about developing talents is knowing which ones we are here and meant to do. Which ones will play a role in our future? Which, which ones are... Which ones are necessary for accomplishing our life's work? And which ones are not? And again, how do we know? And the answer is, where is your bliss? Where is your bliss? Where does your passion point? Those are the talents. Those are the directions where we need to go. To surrender to the fire that burns inside. As Azul says, um, he says, we could, we could watch the current world champion Magnus Carlsen. <laughs> yes, we could, but um, we, we don't, we don't, we don't watch the world championship games. We don't follow any of, of things at that level because it just doesn't, that not, that's not what appeals to us in chess truly it doesn't we've been there we've done that we did that what 35 years ago and so it's we sort of did everything we wanted to do when it came to chess and now we just moved on it served its purpose um and in our life anyway and Benjamin says, thank you for that. Indeed, we all have many talents, but we should develop more of those that will help us on self-realization and in service of the logos. I also love chess. The, the thing about developing talents is which ones are, are important as Benjamin points out here. There is, again, a risk that we take if we make that decision. If I make the decision, if I decide I'm going to develop this and that, and I'm going to take this course, and I'm going to study this, and I'm going to study that because I'm pretty good at this, and I kind of like this, and I want to get better at it because it might prove useful. It might prove helpful. Yes, it might. But remember that our time and our energy particularly our energy, is limited. 
And there's an interesting concept in economics called opportunity cost. Now, this is perhaps ironic that we're bringing up an economic term on this live stream, but hear us out for a moment. We went and did a master's in business administration, by the way. We did it in one year. We took an intensive one-year program to get our MBA. And that process and that experience was an essential part of our journey. So remember, when we talk about our journey, our path, how we're like this pinball getting knocked around all over the place. So one of the places where we got knocked around to and into was a, was a, a master's in business administration. And that's where we learned about this economic and business term called opportunity cost. Opportunity cost refers to the not only, not, everything that you do has a cost associated with it. In economics, that cost comes down to time and money and the time value of money on top of that. So there's, there's a material cost, there's an energy cost, and there's a time commitment cost. And there's also marketing costs and branding costs and all sorts of other costs and production costs and logistics costs and transportation costs and all of these different costs, right? Associated with some sort of enterprise, some sort of pursuit. Opportunity cost adds another dimension onto the superficial calculations of what are the costs of a particular pursuit. The opportunity costs say, okay, what are the costs of pursuing this thing in terms of what other pursuits need to be, need to end up on the cutting room floor because you're pursuing this thing. So think about the development of talents. Have you ever heard the expression, jack of all trades, expert at none? This applies to most people because for most people to develop a talent that requires a lot of time and energy and devotion and dedication and focus and concentration, they have to focus and concentrate on that one talent in order to get to a level of excellence or a level of perfection where they feel that they've developed that talent fully and completely to its to its maximum. So they've realized their potential in that talent. But that usually comes at the expense of all their other talents because we cannot become experts at everything through that dogged single-minded approach because the, the whole reason why the dogged single-minded approach exists is is exactly to remove all distractions and to focus on just one thing or maybe a two a few things a handful of things at most 
So opportunity cost in economics, it's an economic business term and a way of doing business, thinking about business, where you take those other things that are left on the cutting room floor and you take those into account and you add that to the costs of your pursuit. So very simply, a movie studio can produce five movies a year, let's say. They have the, the financing and the studio space and the producers and the directors and the talent and the crew to be able to produce five movies. But they literally receive hundreds of scripts. Hundreds. And among all the scripts, those hundreds of scripts, they receive more than just five good scripts. They probably receive maybe really good scripts, maybe a dozen. And now they have to choose. Out of that dozen, they have to choose five or maybe four or maybe three. Because what if one of those films is a four-hour epic that has to be filmed on the other side of the world and is going is to have a, a, a budget which is $200 million? So now they have to make a choice. Do we make five films for $100 million each? Or do we make this... Or do we make three films and one four-hour epic blockbuster for $200 million? Do we take that risk? Because that epic four-hour four uh, uh, blockbuster, or sorry, uh, might, might tank, might bomb at the box office. And then we're at $200 million. Now we only have three movies left to make up the balance. Okay, opportunity cost. That's the, the weighing, the, the, the balancing these things. Now, in economics and in business, they teach you all sorts of ways to try to come up with that, with the answer to that. And movie producers and movie executives, they have all their ways of trying to pick and choose to minimize their risk. But in life, trying to figure things out trying to come up with the answer of what to pursue based on some sort of uh, mechanical or intellectual application of opportunity cost. If we, <laughs> if we applied what we were taught in that MBA program to our life, we can tell you the opportunity cost of the Atlas project was tremendous. The opportunity cost are is off the off the charts, off the scale. We've invested so much of our time and energy and effort into our life's work, into the path of the Bodhisattva, which in our case happens to have a name, happens to have be an enterprise, happens to have a name and a brand associated with it. And 
we have been raked over the coals by everyone in our family, all of our friends, many of many of whom have left us. I said, well, we, 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 you know, we can't get through to him. He won't listen to reason. You know, we can't relate to him, whatever. So, you know, we've sacrificed everything. Comfort. Well, we have a great deal of comfort, so we shouldn't say we've sacrificed all of our comfort. But we sac certainly sacrificed our pride. We've been humiliated in, in any every conceivable way, certainly from a societal or cultural norm perspective. Because of the tremendous opportunity costs of walking the path of the bodhisattva. Of not having financial security, of not having, you know, to quote our uh, family family member, not having a pot to piss in. But opportunity costs work both ways, yeah? What if we had pursued other avenues, jobs, good paying jobs, so-called uh, stable income, stable sources of income? What if we had pursued that? What if we had, what if we had successfully marketed marketed ourselves as an MBA into some sort of senior managerial position and we're now working at least at least a minimum of 40 to 60 hours a week and remember it's not the time it's the energy so what if we were putting all that mental energy into a full-time executive managerial position for that stable steady income now of course you know what happens once you you have a stable steady income you know what comes along with that well you end up buying real estate a house or a condominium or whatever and then you have a nice car and you have the, those payments and you have all that other stuff to worry about you have all this stuff and you know the things you own end up owning you and when you have a stable income and a nice place and a nice car and everything else well then your family expects you to get married why aren't you married yet so now it's like, now you have that, and then possibly children. Very quickly, these things can balloon. We have people in our family who have said to us outright that the Atlas Project is, at best, a hobby. A hobby. We spend more than 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week on the Atlas Project. But nobody sees that. Nobody knows that. Just like nobody knew all the work, all the effort that Leonardo put into his artwork. They, we knew it after the fact. And just as nobody knew the real suffering that Beethoven went through, going deaf, 
being the master of music for this planet and going deaf in the process. One of the things about your passion is that you don't care what other people think. Your passion is yours. Your path is yours. And the suffering and the things that you endure in the relentless pursuit of perfection, that's yours to know. Nobody else needs to know that. Frankly, nobody else cares. They don't. They don't care to know. They don't want to know. And one of the reasons they don't want to know, and this is where we were heading when Benjamin gave the, uh, the parable of the, uh, the talents, is that average people living average lives they feel uncomfortable knowing someone who is living their bliss, someone who's following their passion, regardless of consequences. They, they, people who have, people who are pursuing worldly success They don't want to know about sacrifice for some um, harebrained scheme or some childhood dream or what have you. They, they, they want nothing to do with any of that. Because they have bought into the notion, the philosophy, that life is about doing your best, and getting by and having a nice, comfortable, safe, secure, successful life. And it's enough to sacrifice for your children. It's enough to sacrifice for your family. And yeah, you put a lot of time and energy into your, into your work, into your workplace, or into your garden, into your home, into redecorating your house, into your hobbies, into your interests. And you, you can be passionate about traveling and passionate about having experiences and seeing the world and, and having dinner parties and having good friends and, right? And you take a lot of pride and take a lot of, and get a lot of satisfaction from all of that. And you can see that the fire, the drive, the energy even as we were describing all of that, you can see how that fire is being dispersed. It's being used up. And not only that, you also can see, because you know people who will justify and rationalize the abandonment of their dreams and their visions and their passions for that safe and secure and comfortable life. And they will justify and they will say that they were right to do so. 
And everybody, everybody has the right to do so. No question. We all have free will and we all have the freedom to pick whatever path we choose. But the path of worldly success is not a path of perfection. Jeff Bezos can never achieve perfection. You know, there's speaking of Bible uh, quotes and parables. There's that quote from about it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to pass through the gates to the kingdom of heaven. Because money may be a representative of energy and power in the world. It's a proxy for energy and power. But it is theoretically limitless. Perfection has a limit. Perfection is defined by a limit. And perfection is not, therefore, perfection is never a quantity. Perfection cannot be quantified. So the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of money, is not and cannot and has never been the pursuit of perfection. Because perfection cannot be quantified. Even with the clever economic concept of opportunity costs. We've spent a lifetime pursuing what we've been pursuing. We have very little to show for it. But we've left a lot on the table. We've let a lot on the cutting room floor. We've sacrificed a lot. And there is untold amounts of wealth and money that we did not earn. But had we earned all of that money and been no closer to the accomplishment of the Atlas Project, Now, this is always a risk when we when we if we if we talk about these subjects. And here Benjamin reveals what that risk is. 
He says, I'm crying inside after hearing that, for I realize that I've been living an average life after all. Let us be clear that not everyone is here on the path of the Bodhisattva. That not everyone has been given some sort of overarching, all-consuming life's work that they are here to pursue. And because of the way the world is, the vast majority of people on the path, for them, the path is something in terms of the perfection of the self that they do in accordance with a life which may seem very average. So a job, a house, a mortgage, a family, kids, etc. There are there have been many, many, many initiates throughout history that have lived a so-called mediocre life or an average life. And their esoteric pursuits have been on the side, have been a hobby, or have been uh, or have been done in secret. Right? Not everybody's a Manly P. Hall or Samaan Bayor writing thousands of pages of books and giving lectures and you know all the rest of it right we're not we're we are not all bodhisattva and if you have followed your heart in your life and following your heart as where you gotten to where you are now then you've followed the right path or you've been doing the right thing. The fact that you found these lectures, these, these live streams, and are listening and participating means that you have an interest and you are keenly aware that there is inside of you a potential. There is a place that you can get to as an individual. But that work on ourself, on our egos, that can take place regardless of what we do for a living. For most of us. Because as long as we're interacting with others and we're facing challenges and we're facing, and our, e our own egos are being mirrored back to us and we're facing the challenge of frustration and anger and fear and anxiety and temptations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then we have that opportunity to work on ourselves. For example, just because we're here doing these live streams and we're here do, working on the Atlas Project doesn't mean that we don't have to work on ourselves, on our own egos, which we do. It's summertime and we live in a household where whether we like it or not, uh, people are always buying ice cream. And ice cream, like just for many, many people, ice cream is one of those, those perfectly, uh, perfectly engineered 
temptations. Fat and sugar and dairy and it's cold and and, and it's creamy. Like they could not, you modern day food scientists can't engineer a more perfectly tempting uh, uh, fattening dessert than ice cream. Have you seen the flavors that they offer these days? It's ridiculous. And it's like, what? It's a three quarters of a cup of ice cream is like 300 calories. It's like 30 minutes on a treadmill. If you want to look at it in those terms. Why do we mention this to you? Because we struggle with that. We, we, we have to face that temptation. We have to... And we struggle with that. That has nothing to do with the Atlas Project. <laughs> so that whether we were having a normal life, an average life, or the life that we're living, it doesn't matter. The temptations we face and the willpower that we have to develop and our capacity to, to perfect ourselves and that path, that path of perfection can happen no matter what we're doing in our life. And not everyone has this clearly defined or overarching, not everyone feels that fiery, that burning fire. Not everyone feels that passionate uh, drive to, to sacrifice themselves and give up everything to pursue one thing. And you don't have to give up everything to perfect yourself. That's the point that we're making about the ice cream. Is that, is that our personal development as an individual, the elimination of egos, the, the perfection of ourselves, that is not reliant on the pursuit of perfection of a talent or a skill or a life's work. Those things can be independent of one another. In fact, if you believe the stories about Mozart, then he's supposedly the original uh, rock star musician. That he was drunk all the time. And like if you, if you see his characterization in the film Amadeus, he was rambunctious, he was flamboyant, he was... Uh, 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 vulgar, womanizing, a drunkard, partying. That he uh, was um, narcissistic and many, many, many um, flaws, character flaws are ascribed to him. Rightly or wrongly, whether they're true or they're rumor. The point is, is that he was able to, to a large degree, fulfill his life's work in a very short life. And it's questionable. We don't know to what degree he achieved any type of perfection of himself. Elimination of egos. 
we don't know. We don't have windows into the souls of men, as the great saying goes. So, so there's this, there's, there's two different paths, there's two different parallel lines here. There's our inner world, our inner perfection. And then there's this outer world, this outer perfection, where something is longing to express itself through us in the world. through this imperfect vehicle, this imperfect vessel. But then there's the perfection of the vehicle itself, the perfection of the vessel itself. And those two things may not be, they're not exactly mutually exclusive, but they are also not the same. So they are related, but they're separate and different. So, the purpose of this live stream, we do not want anyone to walk away feeling discouraged or down on themselves because they're living a so-called, quote, normal life or an average life. That they haven't, they're not walking the path of the Bodhisattva, that they're not suffering and sacrificing to develop some talent or to, to do some beautiful work in the world or some some something because as we described we always find ways of expressing our inner beauty and our innermost intimate Christ can express itself in anything that we do and in everything that we do including preparing a salad or a meal or a dessert in its presentation, or the little things that we do for others. And many people find satisfaction in volunteer, doing volunteer work and volunteering their time and their energy in that way for the sake of others. So... <clears throat> The point is that the energy will flow. Love must flow. Love cannot be hoarded. And if it is, that becomes too much self-love. That becomes narcissism. That becomes that is what degenerates a psyche and a consciousness into the epitome of pride. Love is meant to flow to others. Not too long ago, we made a video on selfish spirituality. And it is a quote by Samael Anmayor, which talks about how many, many, many on the path are focusing on their perfection of self 
their inner perfection. But they do not spend any time or effort or energy for the sake of others. And because they spend no time or energy for the sake of others, the love that they are seeking to develop and seeking access to, to gain access to that fire of fire and the light of lights of the innermost in intimate Christ, they're not sharing it. They're not letting it flow to others. And because they're not letting it flow to others, they're denied the initiations. They're denied the progress that they seek. And Master Samael states clearly why that is. Because every initiation, every, every advancement is given to a monad by the Masters of the White Lodge in accordance with their, their karma and their level of being. But if that monad, that, that initiate, is not giving to others, then nothing is owed to them. Because in the great balance of karma, in the great cosmic dance, everything must balance. And we would argue that, that we can visualize You know, the, there's an expression about your cup is full. You know, that Buddhist expression, when someone's cup is full, they cannot receive anything because their cup is full. If you are not sharing that which you are receiving, which you have received, you're not emptying your cup. If you're not emptying your cup, the masters look at you and they say, we can't, we're not going to give you anything. We're not going to give you anything more. Because number one, your cup is full. We've given you so much, but you haven't given it to anybody else. You haven't let it flow. You haven't passed it forward. Like there's this movie called Pay It Forward. It's another passage from the Bible. Uh, they who give everything away, they shall receive. And they who hoard everything for themselves, they shall receive nothing. Uh, we can't remember exactly what the quote is, but it's, it's essentially what we're talking about here. So Benjamin says, yes, that is true. He, he says, if we can press the right mouse button here, that is true. Love must flow. As Paul states, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, very good. Which again, um, which we're going to come back to that in a minute. As Azil says, besides, we do not walk that path in every single lifetime. Sometimes we reject it. And he says, time is really a thief. Time is a thief. That one, perhaps you can uh, embellish a little bit or explain what you mean by that. 
What do you mean, Azazel, when you say time is a thief? In the in the meantime, coming back to Benjamin's thing about if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm only resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Remember our live stream we did on how to serve and who to serve? This statement from Paul is essentially saying if you speak in the tongues of men or he says of angels but do not have love then you're just making noise if love is not working through you if love is not working through you then what is motivating you if it's not love, something has to be motivating you. We don't do anything without motivation. So if you're being motivated by something other than love, could it be ego? Desire of some kind? And if that is what is motivating you, you're making noise. If you're not sharing love, if you're not doing what you're doing with love, yes, you might be providing some kind of worldly benefit or worldly service, right? That's what a lot of people in their jobs rationalize and justify what they do and how they do it. Well, we're providing a valuable service. Okay. And that's fine for the world. That's the worldly way. Or we're providing entertainment. We're giving people we're giving people joy. We're giving people a little bit of joy or happiness with their entertainment. Well, you know, even people in the pornography industry have rationalized what they do that way. <laughs> Excuse me. So Azazel uh, followed up with uh, time is a thief by saying that time not seen as an illusion can cause resentment and anxiety and end up self-defeating for not being great, etc. So here's our take or our experience. This is why we asked you to, to uh, embellish or, or explain what you mean by this, because our experience of this is related to the statement here. We have uh, fought, and you, we've spoken about this uh, endlessly. Uh, our fear, our demon, has used our life's work And the concept of time 
against us. Since, since we first learned our name, Atlas, which was around the age of 15. Since that time, right up until today, time has been used as is thief the right word it's uh, a thief steals yes steals but really the anxiety the fear the the worry that we're running out of time. That time is too short, that we're not doing enough, or we're not doing it quickly enough. And we give ourselves these outlandish and outrageous deadlines and expect to meet them. And the Christ, as Azazel points out, time is an illusion, and the Christ has no time. It's eternal, and it's in the eternal now, as are we. And things will happen in their own time, when and as they need to, and not before. So applying any kind of worldly uh, time frame to our life's work, for example, is, as Azazel suggests here, it's self-defeating. And we have, in our experience, faced that right up until today. Because just because we are aware of our of our fear doesn't mean that we don't feel it just just because we are aware of our anxiety doesn't mean that we don't suffer from it and just because we know intellectually about time is an illusion and this that and the other thing we are not a, a, a resurrected master so we still have our ego our demons still very much in place we're constantly fighting and wrestling with it that's part of our path so that we're not walking on water and we're not talking above everybody's heads. So that people can relate to us and we can relate to others. So when someone like Azazel makes a statement like time is really a thief, we can say, okay, we ask him to elaborate. Tell us, explain that to us. And once he does, we can say, okay, here's our experience of it that agrees 100% and backs up as a living case study of exactly what you're talking about. Now, let's, let's bring this back and crystallize it 
into the context of perfection. Time is an illusion, but it's used as a weapon. That's why, that's why we, we don't care for this statement, time is a thief. We don't care for this statement. Time is an illusion. It doesn't exist. It's the egos that use time as a weapon. It's our fear that is the thief. It's our egos which are the thief. And time is the dagger that they stick in our back. Time is the, 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 the gun that they threaten us with or the blackjack that they hit us over the head with or beat us with constantly. Like a, like a, a slave driver whipping a slave with a whip. They whip us with that with that time, right? Like the punch clocks and the punch cards in a uh, in a factory, or or when you go to when you go to any kind of job or any kind of responsibility or school or whatever, they have periods and they have alarms and they have clocks on the wall and oh, you better not be late, you better not be late, you better be on time, and then you have doctor's appointments and all of these things and it's oh, you got to be on time, and then why people race through traffic or, or 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 all of these things because they're always racing against the clock right the clock is this is this is this this whip this relentless slave driving whip or it's a weapon or it's a tool of coercion it's the thumb screws that are that are that people are tortured by and tortured with but these but you see it's an implement of suffering it's a tool of suffering. It's a weapon if it's weaponized. But the, but the entities that are causing the suffering are our egos. It's not time itself. Because we also have expressions like, time is on your side. Like any tool, like any implement, illusory or otherwise, time is neutral. A sword that guards the entrance to the castle can be the same sword that's used to murder the princess inside the castle. It all depends on how it is used and who uses it and to, for what purpose. That's what determines what a tool is, an instrument of, of goodness or an instrument of evil. That's why we asked you to explain what you meant by time is a thief. It's not time that's the problem. <laughs> it's how it is used and what uses it and who, who it is used on and what for what purpose. So these statements, it's an illusion that can be used to cause resentment and anxiety. Yes, absolutely. And this statement, it's self-defeating. Uh, it can end up uh, self-defeating. Um, for us uh, beating ourselves up for not being great or not being done or not being finished by now. That's one of the reasons why in the last couple of live streams, we talked about the law of three and the, the law of seven, the organizational law of seven. So even our lives are set up in these seven-year periods, these three seven-year periods, so that we don't start as like we did before we were aware of the three seven-year periods and the organizational law of the universe as it applied to our own lives. We were in our 20s and in our 30s 
freaking out because we weren't doing the Atlas project. We weren't doing it yet. Why aren't we doing it yet? Why aren't we being allowed to do it? We're running out of time. With this, this humanity is running out of time. It's running out of time. Our fear was constantly riding us and whipping us with that, we're running out of time, we're running out of time. Constantly. And so, the pursuit of perfection, we can be damned sure that just like everything else, how many times have you heard us say, the divine ordained purpose of the Black Lodge, of egos, is to twist, tempt, and corrupt, and make fall all that is good and pure and of the light, including the pursuit of perfection. Now, all of a sudden, the pursuit of perfection, if it is co-opted by egos, now that can become a tremendously problematic force, not only in our life, but in the lives of others. If our deep felt fire and passion to do whatever it is that we're here to do somehow gets hijacked by pride, for example, and that's a big one when it comes to perfection. You can, you can rest assured that pride leaps onto the pursuit of perfection and, and immediately attaches itself to that because pride wants to take credit for that. Any and every good thing that we do, pride is the first voice to stand up in our minds and say, I did that. Look what I did. Aren't I amazing? Aren't I talented? Wow, I am so proud of that. And you'll, you'll hear people talk like this. I'm very proud of this and I'm very proud of that. And I'm proud, 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 proud. You didn't do any of that. You didn't. You didn't. You were being done. Every, any and every truly good thing that we have done, like every presentation that I made and every, all, those, all those little things, all those little details, it's the little things that count, right? Every beautiful presentation that we've ever done, we were being done. That beautiful presentation presented itself to us and we just had to do it as we saw it in our mind's eye. It just came to us and out it came and we made a little mandala of that salad or that dessert or that plate or whatever. It was like a little mandala made out of vegetables. But that wasn't my idea. That wasn't my design. I didn't do that. But pride is the first one to leap and to take, take credit for that. In the same way that our perfection 
whatever that may be, individual, internal perfection, or some externally perfected talent or skill or pursuit or life's work or vocation or enterprise, well then, ego will use the, the, the rift of time and space, the distance between where we are and that some, some unknown state of perfection down the road and ego will leap onto our back and become like a monkey on our back, whispering into our ear, oh, you're running out of time. Oh, you're not perfected yet. Oh, you're running out of time. You got to be, you got to do this. You got to do that. And exactly as, as Azil says here, causing us to, uh, causing us to have the, uh, the anxiety and the self-defeating thoughts and beating ourselves up. And then, you know, making all sorts of mistakes because, we're acting out of fear and anxiety now instead of having faith and trust that everything is unfolding in its own time in its own way according to plan but not our plan not my plan not my plan Christ's plan for me my innermost intimate Christ's plan As Azil says, that is exactly what I meant by that line. I usually speak in a manner of letting people fill in some pieces. Well, it's, we, 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 we filled them in. Um, he says, use intuition and see who will resonate with the meaning. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, okay. So Magabu says, uh, teacher, I have been given the ability to lucid dream since I was a child. And as time goes by, I am slowly mastering the art of astral projection. However, I can't seem to bring my full consciousness to the astral. I don't remember God. I don't remember my mother. Do you have any tips or advice? Yes. And... Uh, the advice is, well, the, it begins with a question. Have you asked to see your innermost being in the astral plane? Have you met your innermost being? Have you met your divine mother in the astral plane? If you have difficulty remembering your being and remembering your divine mother, ask to see them the next time you have a lucid dream, the next time you're in the astral, ask to meet them face to face. We cannot imagine that you would have that experience and, and not be able to remember it. So um, that would be our advice especially for someone who's, if you're proficient at, uh, at astral travel. The second thing would be to ask to, ask to, uh, 
Yeah, see, as Azil agrees here, it's impossible to forget. Well, if you meet your innermost being or your divine mother, understanding that your divine mother can reveal herself to you in any way that she deems appropriate. But the point is, is as Azil points out, it's if you meet your innermost being or your divine mother in the astral plane, you'll never forget that experience. And so you, you will be able to have that visualization with you. And it will be that much easier for you to uh, remember them moment to moment. But the other thing that we would suggest is if you are that good at astral travel, then ask to, to go to the Akashic Records. And travel to the Akashic records and and study in the Akashic from the Akashic records. Ask to be shown the records of your past lives, for instance. And you can travel to any of the temples of the Great White Brotherhood and ask for instruction. You can ask to see one of the archangels. If you are that good at uh, if you're that good at uh, astral travel, then um, then take advantage of where you are in the astral plane, and beg and uh, ask for boons for these blessings. And the more you experience the generosity and the love and the caring of divinity in the astral plane the more that you will the more that it will be top of mind and in your heart moment to moment throughout the day as azil says for me it was in the form of lilith uh, lilith the demon your divine mother came to you as a demon? Is that what you're suggesting there? Um, because that's that's who Lilith is, or at least our uh, knowledge of Lilith. But anyway, we shared your quote anyway. But the point is, the divine mother will appear to us in whatever form we need to see her as. We were speaking of Da Vinci earlier. For Da Vinci, his divine mother appeared to him as the woman in the most famous painting in the world, which is the Mona Lisa. So Azazel says, no, not the demon, the inverted aspect of God. The inverted aspect of God is that is a demon. That's what inverted means.
All right. So the key. Okay. So Mugabu responds here. Uh, no, I haven't. I have seen a very small feminine figure that showed me a lot, showed me Oris. It was a message, though she was small. She might have been your divine mother, but she was small. And she showed you Horus. Now, Horus is the Christ in the Egyptian tradition. So it's very possible that that small woman was, that small feminine figure was your divine mother. But again, she was obviously in hiding, not hiding. She was, she was in disguise. She was appearing to you in a way that she felt you needed to see her. And clearly you didn't see her. You registered her as a feminine figure but she was your divine mother you just didn't register that she was your divine mother um so speaking of divine mother and and being in disguise and and sh appearing to us as we as uh, she needed um there's something unnerving about your divine mother appearing to you as the queen of hell as as lilith as a demon. And did you ask to meet her? Did you ask to meet your divine mother and then Lilith appeared? And how did how do you know it was Lilith? This is what we're trying to glean. Because yes, of course, there is that aspect uh, that's present, but if you had asked to meet your Divine Mother and she appeared to you in that way, then she appeared to you that way for a reason. And it's not... Well, you've certainly never heard of anybody. It's not usually how our Divine Mother appears to us when we ask to see her. Okay, so you questioned the appearance of the mentioned figure and asked for her name. And asked her her name. Yes, but what's unclear to us 
is did you ask to see your divine mother or did this figure just appear to you? It's the it's the conflation between your divine mother and Lilith that's that's we're finding problematic because Lilith is a manifestation of the divine mother in mechanical nature And if you ask to see your Divine Mother and she appeared to you that way, then that's a very strong message. But if that figure just appeared to you, you asked her your name and she said, Lilith, and then you assumed that she's your Divine Mother, that's an, that's an entirely different circumstance. Okay. Okay. So you asked to see her. She appeared a certain way. You asked her her name. She said it was Lilith. Okay. That's a very, very strong, powerful message. Very strong, very powerful. And it's a severe message at that. So that's why we said it was a bit unnerving, that's all. And it was just the circumstances around it which we wanted to be clear on. Because as we've said before, um, anytime, yeah, yeah, so anytime, um, we, encounter anything in the astral plane uh, we always have to be cognizant that it can be either a demon in disguise or just a demon and many times demons will pretend to be something that they are not however if you ask to see your divine mother there's no demon that's going to appear in her place. But if she appears to you as a demon, well then, that's, that's a deep and a severe lesson that your Divine Mother is giving to you. And it's, that's something that we can't express what that lesson is. That's something that's for you to meditate on. But all of this comes from, all of this is falling out of Magabu's uh, question related to the astral plane and, and remembering his uh, divinity, his innermost being and divine mother. So that's the other thing, Magabu 22, is that if you haven't studied the course on defense for spiritual warfare, uh, we encourage you to do that because if you are traveling in the astral plane regularly, um, 
you should make yourself aware of uh oops that's not the that's not the course that we wanted to share with you it's this one if you're traveling in the astral plane regularly it is worthwhile knowing how to defend yourself and there's the link and the link is in the chat and the link is on the screen it's worthwhile to know the techniques on how to protect yourself and defend yourself against malevolent entities because they are there and they are relentless because uh, they are designed i mean look let's be honest look around the world today and look at yourself we spoke we spoke earlier of ice cream and the perfect temptation which is ice cream it's fat it's sugar it's dairy it's creamy it's cold it's it is it is the perfect temptation think about that those words side by side perfect temptation for example the orgasm fornication right every single ego that we we say possess but really are possessed by is an expression of perfection look at the world look at how degenerated the world has become and how perfectly hypnotized individuals are the cognitive dissonance that they suffer from the complete hypnosis and ignorance they suffer from how easily they're brainwashed and manipulated by their own egos by their own minds by their own beliefs and conditioning etc etc the black lodge does its work to perfection this is a fact you cannot argue this point truly you can't there's a reason why even in literature and in film the villains are always more interesting than the heroes the villains are always more dedicated <laughs> to their villainy than the heroes are to and they're always more uh, uh they're always better at it than the heroes are at, at being heroic 
the heroes have stumbling blocks and obstacles and learning what to do to but the villains never seem to go through that the villains all <laughs> seem to be experts at villainy it's just circumstance or happenstance or the hero uh you know comes across something or other and just you know like like for example indiana jones uh in the raiders of the lost ark right indiana jones like fumbles through 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 obstacle over obstacle over obstacle over obstacle over obstacle <laughs> And in the end, it's the villain's own hubris that, that, that leads to their demise and downfall. As Azil says, yes, every bit that Semael writes about the Black Lodge and its temples is terrifyingly true. So, so the thing about the pursuit of perfection Only the Black Lodge speaks out against perfection. Only egos encourage you not to pursue perfection and, and to say, no, 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 you, you, you can never be perfect. It's wrong to want to be perfect or it's wrong to, to pursue, pursue perfection. We can never be perfect. And that and that will only lead to disappointment and, and anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, the Black Lodge is there to uh, steer us away from the perfection of God, away from expressing our perfection, away from our bliss, away from our passion, away from the one thing that can give us true satisfaction and can give us that peace and happiness and joy, that bliss that nothing else can give. Of course, the Black Lodge wants to steer us away from it because the Black Lodge wants us to pursue it and its perfection. Our Black Lodge wants to turn us into perfect demons. Now, of course, th that takes many, many lifetimes. And of course, we have to start off by being perfect sheep, perfect chattel perfect little obedient servants that's what the black lodge that's the perfection that the black lodge wants us to pursue and pursues in us and that's why it convinces us not to pursue the perfection of the, of the being because it wants to turn us into perfect little obedient servants of desire of pleasure of comfort, of security. No, have the perfect little comfortable, happy, pleasant life. Go on the perfect vacation for two weeks, once a year. Have the perfect house, the perfect family, the perfect car, the perfect this, the perfect that. Now, of course, we know that none of those things are ever going to be perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect vacation. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage or a perfect wife or a perfect house or perfect kids or a perfect job. But you'll be perfectly happy. You'll be perfectly comfortable. You'll be perfectly secure. That's the lie. 
That's the temptation. That's the corruption. That's the distraction. And meanwhile, the Black Lodge, our own egos, are quietly and cleverly and insidiously converting us and turning us into perfect zombies. And then later, perfect villains, perfect black magicians, and then eventually perfect awakened demons. Perfectly consumed by desire. Perfectly controlled by our egos. So, and, or, our passion, our, the source of our bliss, our longing for God's perfection, perfectly co-opted, hijacked, and held ransom by our egos, or perfectly converted and degenerated into an obsession All of these things come into play. But the pursuit of God's perfection is our birthright. As it is the birthright of all monads and all phenomena in the universe. Because after all, there is no phenomenon in the universe which is not of God. The whole universe, the whole game, and all levels of existence and reality exists for God to know its perfection in all its myriad forms. And to strive for the expression and achievement of another form of that perfection. Another individuated, individual, unique expression, unique form of that perfection. Because the thing about perfection is that it's undefined. You know it when you see it, when you experience it, you know it. That's perfect. That's perfect. You just know it. But then it's, but that's not the end. Every cherry blossom is perfect. They're all different. How can they all be perfect if they're all different? Because they're all perfect expressions of the unmanifested, unformed, unexpressed essence of cherry blossomness. The unformed, unmanifested, unexpressed essence exists in Atsaluth, in the world of archetypes. That is the world of Keter. That is the world of the Logos. That is the world of the first emanation. But that essence is unexpressed and unformed. 
that perfection is cannot be experienced. It can be known, but it's known in it in a way that is not the same. So it's it's unknown. It's known, but it's not known because it's not yet expressed. It's not yet formed. And if it's not yet expressed, or if it's not yet expressed, it cannot be received because it is through expression and reception that experience is created. So without an expression, there cannot be a reception. And without the union of expression and reception, there is no experience. That's Tantra. That's the Tantra of experience itself. That's the Tantra of Gnosis itself. The positive expression and the, 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 the negative reception and the union of positive and negative, the neutral experience. On that neutral ground, the experience of that perfection. So that happens through a myriad infinite number of expressions like the infinite number of monads the infinite number of atoms, molecules in the universe that are all expressions of God's perfection, individuated expressions, seeking to express that perfection in whatever way they can. So even if you have that, quote, average normal life, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can express God's perfection. You have that capacity. You have that potential. And it is your birthright. That is the birthright of every human being. To be who and what they were born to be, which is a unique individual expression of God's perfection. Unlike any other expression which came before and unlike any other expression which will come after. Truly unique. That's what makes each and every individual special. Not because we are all the same. We are not all the same. We are all different. We are all different. Regardless of race, creed, color, and all this ridiculous identity politics. And this Think about, well, we are all one, we are all one, we are all one. We are all one in potentiality. And we are all one by virtue of the fire that burns deep within the essence of our being. That spirit. And even that one spirit is three. the infinite expression and reception and union. So, Mugabu, coming back to uh, Mugabu, things. Uh, I think the message was that I am not close to reaching Christ, but that like everyone, I have the potential to embody Christ. As we, this relates directly to what we were saying. This, this uh, Mugabu is responding to um, oh, we missed one. We missed one. Uh, Mugabu said her appearance this is coming back to the feminine figure 
who introduced you to Horace. And she appeared, her appearance changed and englobed or encapsulated my whole room. I was taken in a beautiful gold room where I saw Horace and felt dirty compared to Horace, who was also golden. Okay. And then to this, Mugabu added, I think the message was that I am not close to reaching Christ, but that like everyone, I have the potential to embody Christ. Wow. Um, this is a powerful experience. To have that kind of experience in the astral plane and to feel that visceral filth, to, 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 to know that there's Horus, there's the, the Christ with all of his golden resplendence and, and this golden room and my divine mother pointing the way to the golden bodies of the, of the innermost intimate Christ and, and to be there and to feel dirty. All we can say is that our experience of being touched by the Christ um, which we wrote about in this poem we attempted to share our powerful experience of being touched by the Christ and there is a um, there's a stanza in here that expresses um, how uh unworthy we we felt and here it is um when we say uh and we observe ourselves filthy and unworthy of this guest in our house we have no three kings to greet our savior cometh among the barnyard cubby of our animal mind what gifts can we offer but the filth of our minds, the pain in our hearts, and the stress in our body? So it's always, and um, yeah, it's, it's always, it's inevitable, right? If, you, if we have an experience of the Christ, in any capacity, we will come away from that experience cognizant of our unworthiness, cognizant of our filthiness, of our, that we are dirty. Because Horus, the Christ, is pure light, it's pure love. There's no filth, there's no ego. So, of course, we're going to feel that. And that makes us cognizant and makes us remember of the work that we have to do on ourselves. And there's Mugaboo's experience of it.
So this is not designed to make us feel ashamed. And we write that we, we, you know, there is no shame to speak of here and now. We are incapable of that shadowy pride. Our egos have fled to the darkest corner, corners of our mind. So here we are talking about being filthy and unworthy. And yet in the, the next line, we're talking about but there is no, but we have no shame. This is how you know you have experienced the Christ and how you are, you have genuine gnosis where you can be cognizant and aware of your filthiness, your dirtiness, your unworthiness, and yet feel no shame. It's just a fact. You just know it. It's just like saying the sky is blue and water is wet. It just is. It just is. It's not. You don't have to feel ashamed that the sky is blue and you don't have to feel uh, 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 you know, ashamed that the water is wet. It just is what it is. This is the nature of gnosis and that nature of knowing. It just is. It just You just know it. And this is the what what genuine experiences bring to us is those glimpses, those clear uh, portraits of ourselves, to know ourselves. Remember what we commented about uh, Strazo's uh, uh, sculpture and how to achieve that level of perfection must have required countless attempts and countless failures before he reached that level of skill, of perfection in his craft. Leonardo's sketchbooks are filled to the brim with rough drawings and sketches and and you know and and it's all like scribbling and notes and and you know crude drawings and so but some of them are exquisite drawings but a lot of them are crude a lot of them were done with ink and you know charcoal and whatever he had you know but he didn't he didn't seek perfection in all of those was just they they were just the building blocks they were just the stuff the 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 sand and the gravel which was going into the 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 concrete mix that was being poured into the foundation of his mastery so Mastery and perfection are built on the foundation of imperfection, of dirt, of filth. Beethoven's music was born of a, from a vessel who was deaf, who could not hear it. 
And he started off just with imperfect hearing. And as his physical hearing degenerated until, until it eventually vanished, his metaphysical hearing developed and achieved perfection so that he could hear and translate onto paper and express in the world the musical perfection and yet not be able to hear it, be a completely imperfect physical hearing mechanism. But his metaphysical hearing was perfected because he sacrificed his physical hearing for the sake of his metaphysical hearing. That's a lesson for us to consider as we meditate and pursue perfection. To be a perfect human being or to seek God's perfection cannot come, cannot happen without sacrifice. Sacrifice for others, for the sake of others, and for the sake of the expression of that perfection. We cannot have our cake and eat it too. We can't. Something must go. That's on those scales. And that's why the perfect music that Beethoven and his perfect Ninth Symphony, the symphony perfected, came at the sacrifice of the physical musician. The, 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 the one tool that a music, you would imagine a musician needs more than any other, that's what he had to sacrifice. for the sake of the true master inside, the master of music inside. Because it's, it's our innermost master who needs to be able to hear. All we need to be able to do is take dictation, as Mozart said about his music. Or as, sorry, in the movie Amadeus, Salieri said about Mozart's music, that it seemed as though Mozart was just taking dictation. So, that, if you want to have a singular uh, example or case study of the perfection paradox, then you can use Beethoven as that example or that case study. But there are many others. There are many others. Again, like we mentioned, like Leonardo da Vinci and his scribblings and notes and all the other people who have, who and all of their failures and all of their foibles and all of their faults and all of this. And out of those foibles and faults and failures is born some expression of perfection. Because those faults, failures and foibles, those defects and vices those egos, the Black Lodge, they are the obstacles, the mountains, the suffering, the causes, that all the things that we are willing to endure and that we are here to 
to overcome and conquer and master in order to achieve some semblance, some expression of God's perfection in our life, through our life, and in our inner world, in our inner psyche. And as, as Azil mentioned, and we pointed out, and the Black Lodge are here to do the same thing. As is expressed in every movie and every uh, book, comic book, you name it, video game, right? The villains are always seeking, like, uh, even the, the thieves, right? They're, they're, everybody, Everybody's looking to achieve the perfect crime. You know, in those police movies and those detective movies, they're always talking about, oh, it's the perfect crime. It's the perfect crime. And the villains are always trying to get away with the perfect crime. And the villains, these Bond villains with their their elaborate schemes and plots and plans and everybody's everybody's looking to become the perfect villain, the perfect expression of evil, the perfect this, the perfect that. That's the Black Lodge. They are as dedicated and devoted to their craft and their path, the left-hand path, as we are to the light and love and the right-hand path. So we cannot afford to be naive and we cannot afford to, to be complacent. And we certainly cannot afford to fall for the tempting, blasé, lukewarm advice of the masses of the herd who say, oh, just relax. Oh, perfection is overrated. And oh, you know what? It's good enough. It's good enough. You don't have to do that. Oh, you don't need to do that. You don't need that. It's good enough. Just relax. Take it easy. Enjoy yourself. Go, you know, have just live a good life. Da da da. Do this. Blah, 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 blah. You know what? There's this great line from Gangs of New York. And even though Bill the Butcher is the technically the villain of that movie, it doesn't matter. He says, to uh, uh, Tammany, uh, Tammany, he says to him, he says, you are neither hot nor cold. And because you are lukewarm, I will spew you from my mouth. And he says this with disgust, with disdain to this politician, this this lukewarm because politicians are like that like they're slippery they're slimy they're they're this way they're that way they're they're they're, they're um wishy-washy right and even the word wishy-washy comes from that like wishy-washy people used to do laundry by hand right they would you know wishy-washy in lukewarm soapy slippery water right it's wishy-washy that that wishy-washiness, that lack of integrity, that lack of dedication, that lack of commitment, that lack of devotion, that lack of character, of passion, of definition. That is what constitutes and defines right, the unwashed masses that's what makes them really dirty. 
because Master Samael said, there is nothing more beautiful than a life intensely lived. Intensely lived. That means moment by moment. Awake, focused, aware, conscious. And it is the pursuit of perfection that sharpens the consciousness, the mind, the senses, in the moment, seeking the perfection in each and every moment. That's That intensity comes from the Christ. Our innermost intimate Christ is what gives us that intensity. Question it. Doubt it. Read this. Read our testimony of being touched by the Christ. Read it out loud. Feel the intensity with which we wrote this and recognize that it's a, a weak, pale, shadowy reflection of what we actually were feeling and experiencing at the time. There is nothing more beautiful than a life intensely lived. And it's that intensity which drives us to the relentless pursuit of perfection. All right. As Azil says, if we stumble, they will happily receive us with warm hugs and good green tea. <laughs> and as Azil also says, the way I see it, we all play chess and we are here peeking at your game and how it's going. What we are working on right now, there's another reason why we did this live stream on intensity. What we are working on now um, as we speak is the video, the summary video, the overview video for the Atlas Project. And the intensity that we are devoting to the words, the, the images, the icons, the symbols, the colors, the shapes, the forms, they're relationship to one another um, we can't even and it's in the pursuit of perfection 
this we are limited of course with our resources and our abilities and and, and and so on and so forth but what we are not limited by is we are not limited in our intensity for the relentless pursuit of perfection we are not limited by what really truly matters and that is the fire of the christ of the logos inside of us so one way or another the finished product will be an expression a perfect expression it may not be a perfect video it may not be a perfect uh, work of technical brilliance so technically it may not be perfect but the substance of it its message and its its delivery will be as perfect as we are able to do it at this time and so we're taking our time to do it and it may take a week it may take a month it may take until the the rest of the summer but we are taking the time that we need to achieve the perfection that this is owed because this video is will be not only on the website but this will be our impression to the world this will be our our the way in which we essentially introduce the atlas project to the masses and to this is going to be the defining thesis of the, the atlas project the whole atlas project reduced and compacted and super concentrated into into what ultimately should be uh in the five minute ballpark give or take or less than five minutes if we can manage it but we're not sure we can manage it we're certainly um at the point in terms of content in terms of writing this intensity you see the intensity of the christ the fire of the fire is what is required for alchemy and is required for let's say forging metal and forging steel but but then the alchemical process as well happens in the fiery crucible right the creation of 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 alloys and and the transmutation happens under heat and under pressure that intensity that if we visualize and and meditate upon the japanese master swordsmaker swordmaker the master blacksmith folding the metal 
hundreds of times and and putting it into the coals the the hot coals and pounding it out and folding it over and pounding it out and quenching it and putting it back into the hot coals and and the carbon from the hot coals being worked into the metal layer by layer by layer by layer creating that carbon steel that signature carbon steel look to metal which has been folded and pounded and folded and pounded and folded and pounded the pounding the intensity but but all of that carbon and that steel is being compacted and and worked together and and made more dense and more concise and more compact and more ordered and structured and more perfect to create that perfectly sharp edge which is all but indestructible. To cut through, slice through, as our words and our expression of the Atlas Project has to cut through the, the rhetoric, the jargon, it has to be able to slice through the bullshit and cut through people's armor of their conditioned beliefs and their cognitive dissonance. The only thing that can do that is a blade which is forged in the fires of Christ and is hardened and honed with the sharpness of awakened consciousness. So that when it slices through the armor that people have, the armor of their beliefs, of their intellect, of their opinions and their theories and their dogmas and, 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 and all the rest of it, it slices through with the power of self-evident experiential knowledge, that which we seek on the path, gnosis, the truth, to cut through and cut down all comers, all obstacles, all opponents. And do so not with 60 books or a thousand page books like Blavatsky wrote and Gurdjieff wrote. And not even with this body of these live streams, two hours, three hours, four hours long at a time. No. Five minutes. To be able to show the world the one cause all its problems and all its suffering. It's one reason, one cause. And to be able to show them that and show them the one solution.
definitively, objectively, in a self-evident way, which is beyond, beyond question, which they cannot argue against, which they cannot deny, they cannot resist, they cannot dismiss. If they have any semblance of awakened consciousness and any semblance of reason left, they cannot. They can only do so by being irrational and by, by, they, but if they have any ounce of capacity for experiential knowledge left, They, they, they cannot deny it, then they will be denying themselves. They'll be de denying the facts. They'll be denying what they themselves will have, will have experienced as the truth. Yeah, resist is probably not the right word. You know what we mean by, by resist. They cannot... Uh, uh, Something which has no antitheses. There's no, 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 there's no antithesis. There's no alternative explanation or alternative um, viewpoint or opinion or theory for them to fall back on. We are creating a an expression a perfect expression of the nature of the human condition on this planet an expression which is perfect for this humanity in this time and in this place. In five minutes. Well, we're not, we're not creating that expression in five minutes. It, will, it needs to be experienced in five minutes or less. <clears throat> or given, given in and around five minutes. That five-minute limit is just arbitrary. what is expressed in the bible and in all religious scripture and in all the books of philosophy and in all the books of literature and in all the works of shakespeare and in all the mythologies and the high art and we are here to express it in five minutes in a way which is completely self-evident, which requires no, no elaboration, 
which requires no explanation, no footnotes, no additional research, that, that, that it is complete, is complete. Now, it's still just the doorway. It's the first step. But it's the first step which is the most important. That first impression must be, must be perfect. We only get one chance to make a first impression. So we would be foolish to adhere to some kind of ridiculous uh, deadline. And we would be foolish to rush it out. We're taking the time that it needs, like a master swordsman, a master blacksmith in Japan. Because according to Japanese legend, every katana has a soul. And what we are doing what we're doing needs to be a perfect expression of not my truth, my truth, but Christ's truth, the truth, the Logos, expressed perfectly for this humanity in this time and in this place in human history, a perfect expression of the gnosis, of the self-evident experiential knowledge of the nature and essence of the human condition. Where we are, why we are where we are, and what we need to do to get to where we need to be. Five minutes. We were up at 4 a.m. this morning. We generally speaking, go to bed at 10, and we generally speaking, wake up at 3 or 4, and we meditate. Uh, but today, we were up at 3, and we didn't get more than 30 minutes into our meditation when we were told, no, no, get up. It's not time to meditate. You've meditated enough. <laughs> Go and do. Meditate in front of the computer with a mouse. Meditate while you're writing. Meditate while you're working. Get to work. So it's one of those days. And we do what, we to we do what we're told. And um, all we can say is, So far, so far, so good. We don't want to oversell it, although we have, we know we have. But hey, we've just spoken for nearly three hours on the relentless pursuit of perfection. So surely, surely, we're not going to sit here underselling it.
surely we're not going to sit here and say that, oh yes, but when it comes to our life's work, we're okay settling on good enough. No. 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 Good enough just won't cut it. No master blacksmith in Japan ever said, good enough. Not when he knew his what his katana had to be able to cut through and cut down and slice through. Not when he knew the opposition would have katanas as well. Not when he knew that the katanas, that the blade that he is working on, the katanas that that blade would be meeting on the field of battle were also made to perfection. That the Black Lodge has degenerated and, and armed this humanity to the teeth with all manner of weapon and defense and armor to resist, to deflect, to counter, to parry, to block any at and all attempts to penetrate through, to slice through the lies and the misinformation and disinformation and to touch the spark, the innermost essence of Christ in the hearts of each and every member of this humanity, including the global elite including the members of the Black Lodge themselves. So, good enough is not good enough. Good enough will not cut it. Nothing short of perfection. Nothing short of perfection. And there is no... there, And, and it's never... For us, at least, in our life, it's never been more important and it's never been more meaningful and it's never been more appropriate to seek with intensity, with the intensity, with the fire of a thousand suns, to seek the distillation and the, and the, 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 the transmutation, the transubstantiation. into a shareable expression of that truth, which is perfect for this degenerated humanity, this suffering humanity in this time and in this place on this planet. If someone wants to fault us for pursuing perfection, to that end, for that purpose, for that effort, for the sake of suffering humanity, then let them. Bring them on. Bring on all comers. We will have 
the sharpest katana ever forged with which to defend the truth and the light and the love of the Logos. And we are not afraid. And we, and we are not, we have not ever, ever allowed any obstacle or temptation or distraction to, to get between us and our duty to the Christ. And there's certainly nothing anybody can say or do or convince or rationalize or justify why our work is, why our approach to seeking perfection in what we do for the sake of suffering humanity, why that is inappropriate or harmful or taking too long. And so that's our final personal note on perfection and the perfection paradox. Knowing that we are a long way from actually being and actually reaching the perfection of the logos but rome was built brick by brick and as we said for the atlas project what we're working on now is that all important first impression all important spearhead arrowhead the tip of the spear and if the tip of the spear isn't isn't as sharp as it can be and hardened and strong and perfectly formed and shaped, well then, it's not good enough. Does anybody have any questions? On perfection or on anything, really. We hope you uh, found today's discussion of perfection useful and helpful. And we hope that um, you're able to apply it in your own life to the little things and the big things. To what you do out there in the world for others and what you focus on and do in your internal worlds, in your own development psychologically um, if no one has any comments or questions uh, we don't doesn't seem at the moment that anybody does then we will say thank you for tuning in remember next week there will be no live stream we'll be returning at the week after that but we'll but keep just keep checking um on youtube or facebook and we'll have appropriate announcements. So thank you again for, uh, for being here and joining us. And, um,
we encourage you to spend the next week moment by moment remembering yourself and observing and seeking the perfection all around you and within you expressing itself and longing to express itself all the time because you will find it you will find it it is there it is there you're welcome benjamin thank you for being here all right <clears throat> so again thank you and um as always we say uh inverential peace <laughs>